Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com, or have left for me questions you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the, the show here. Thanks for inviting me into your home. I hope you guys got a, check, got a chance to check out the podcast I dropped yesterday. It was pretty short. It's about Will Smith. It's about violence in Scientology. It's about... Um, that, you know, the incident that we've all read way too much about at this point. But I thought I would use that opportunity to talk about violence in Scientology and quote some L. Ron Hubbard as to what we would get briefed on and talk to, talk to about when it came to promoting or using violence as a means of production basically. Uh, so anyway, I hope you guys will check that podcast out. And of course, we had our Critical Conversation show on Friday, which I'm always going to put a little plug in here for because we have such a fun time in that show. It is Friday night. It's at six o'clock mountain time. Uh, my wife is usually here with me. And we talk about whatever we want. We have th different themes that we take up during the show. Like this week, we took up cults and criminality and discussed that a little bit. But it's a chance for folks to call in and talk to us and basically ask us anything you want So uh, or talk about whatever you want. So we have fun with that. And I try not to let those turn into just Scientology-only Q&A shows because uh, that's what this is for. But, uh, but it, we do have fun with that one. So I hope you guys will come around and check that out. And then finally, I wanted to let you guys know I've got a Vimeo account open now. So if you guys want to uh, throw me some love that way, you can do so. The link to that is below, uh, as well as, of course, PayPal and Patreon. And I would really, really, really love it if you guys are digging my channel to support it through Patreon. All right, guys, let's get on with your questions. Michael Yoder. I've been listening to more LRH lectures. I find them fascinating, but incoherent. In one, he talked about white, black, and gray Dianetics. He talked about gray Dianetics and mentioned white, but seemed completely averse to talking about black Dianetics. What is black Dianetics? Okay, Michael, thank you for this question. And yeah, let's go ahead and talk about black Dianetics. And this is not a racial thing at all. This has nothing to do with that. This has to do with the misuse or the, you could, you could also call black Dianetics evil Dianetics or malinetics or something like that. <laughs> it is, uh, as Hubbard described it, uh, and this was something that he talked about really only in the first couple of years of Dianetics, and then it kind of really didn't really get any, any real uh, wheels. It didn't really go anywhere, uh, but... The idea with black Dianetics was that you could take Dianetics principles and you could twist them or corrupt them or use them in such a way that you could hurt people or control them or otherwise uh, make life difficult for them. The idea with Dianetics is that it is a, a science of the mind. That's how it originally sort of framed itself or put itself out. And so Hubbard was, was, was saying that the mind, the human mind, is, is um, conceived to be contained, it has different parts. There's an analytical mind, there's a reactive mind, and there's a somatic mind. And every animal, every, everything that lives has some form of somatic mind. That's Hubbard's sort of catch-all for all the lower uh, life 
uh, functions that the brain's doing with the body and all that, all that kind of work that is happening to keep the body going, all the inter, you know, the the um, interoception, the internal perceptions of the of the brain, all of that work would be somatic mind work. It's stuff you are not conscious of, not really in, in control of, or even necessarily trying to be in control of. Um, Hubbard go, did go into gurus and who can lower their heart rate or, you know, stop a cut from bleeding and stuff like that, and how they could take control of, of, of the somatic mind or parts of it. But um, not a lot of attention put on that. The main attention in Dianetics is put on the reactive mind. Uh, the analytical mind is supposed to be the analyzer or the rational part of the mind. And Hubbard later referred to the analytical mind as the Thetan, the, the, the spirit itself. Uh, but the reactive mind is, um, is the, the idea with the reactive mind is that you have bad things happen to you, painful things, uh, things that make you go unconscious, even if only for a few microseconds, uh, unconsciousness is unconsciousness. And if you are, if your awareness is lowered to that degree by pain, trauma, stress, etc., then you are experiencing what in, what in Dianetics is called an engram. This is a word that Hubbard uh, took from um, cytology, I think, from cellular studies. Uh, an engram is a memory or trace on a cell, uh, is the idea of that word from science. And Hubbard just kind of took it and said, okay, well, we're going to repurpose it for Dianetics. And we're going to say that a moment of pain and unconsciousness, any, any incident that you have experienced in your life, which contains as part of it, pain and unconsciousness is recorded in the reactive mind. It is not recorded in the analytical mind. And these incidents of pain and unconsciousness are then reactivated at later times in your life when the situation approximates that traumatic, unconscious, painful episode. So the classic example is you get bit by a dog and you have an engram now. There's pain, there's unconsciousness, and later on, maybe you hear a dog barking, maybe you see a dog, maybe you see that same kind of dog, or maybe even that same dog that bit you, or some other thing that approximates the environment and circumstances of that engram, and that is called a restimulation of that engram. In, in present time, you're not having a new engram. The dog's not biting you now, maybe you're just hearing it bark, but that's enough to key in to re-stimulate that earlier time, that engram. And the engram is a permanent recording, so it's there, and it's got that pain. And it's also got the words that were recorded at the time of the incident. So maybe somebody was saying to you, get away from that dog, or, oh my God, that's going to hurt, or, oh gee, that must be painful, or, or, or a million other things that they might be saying to you at the time that you're getting bit by this dog. So that's part of the engram, and the words can come back at you later on. The reactive mind will throw them at you, will sort of, uh, during these times of restimulation, the engram, the function of it is to prevent trauma, stress, and loss, and pain, right? You, you experience these engrams, and the reactive mind later on is supposed to, to warn you of this danger, Danger, Will Robinson. Danger, right? Dog barking. Last time a dog was barking in your vicinity, you got bit. So, you know, hey, heads up. 
But it's all subliminal. It's all subconscious. You're not aware of the reactive mind's operation. All you know is suddenly you're uncomfortable. You're in pain. You may, maybe, you're, maybe your hand starts hurting. Or something you feel that there's some kind of danger. Or the words that you were told during the time of the engram uh, can come back and be like a command. They can act as a as a as like a hypnotic command or a suggestion that you have to act upon. So if somebody is saying to you while you're getting bit by this dog, "Oh man, that must hurt. I'd uh, I'd hate to be you right now." If somebody said that, then the theory, the idea is what Hubbard claims is that this engram, when it restimulates later on you'll actually start feeling exactly like those words tell you to. Oh, you're, you're going to hurt. Uh, and you're going to feel like you don't like yourself or you don't want to be yourself or you're not yourself because here's this command telling you, oh, I'd hate to be you right now. And here's the reactive mind visiting those words upon you again in present time. And so you're interpreting them now and again, it's all unconscious and you know, and, and subconscious and all that. So it's not like you're aware that this is happening. And suddenly you just feel really weird and you don't understand why. Okay. This is how Hubbard describes all of this. Now, this is all nonsense. This isn't actually how this works. There's bits and pieces of this that are uh, kind of consistent with trauma uh, theory and, and, and therapy and what we know about trauma, but it's not about reactive minds and engrams and pain and unconsciousness. It's not that simple. And trauma is, is, is intensely more complicated than that. And also very, very individual specific. What could be traumatic for you is not necessarily going to be traumatic for me. So, you know, and there's a lot of questions about engrams that don't really get answered in Scientology. Like, okay, so it's an incident of pain and unconsciousness. But if you are, you know, knocked out and then you start coming to, so you're only semi-conscious. Well, okay, so how much is the reactive mind in play at that moment? And how much do you need to worry about those times? And if people are saying things, how long until it's it's okay for them to say them when they're not going into your reactive mind? Like these kind of exact specific kind of questions, and these are just a couple that are, you know, occurring to me off the top of my head. These kind of questions never really get answered by Hubbard. Now, I'm explaining all of this so that I can tell you that black Dianetics would be knowing all of this is true, taking all of this as true. Like Hubbard, Hubbard says, these are factual, factual statements that this whole theory and the reactive mind and all of that is absolutely factual. So if it's all true, and it's not, but if it is, or if it were, then black Dianetics would be using this knowledge to hurt people or harm people or control them. Because if you know that a reactive mind exists and that engrams exist and that words in engrams can be revisited upon a person as a command then you could try to install commands in somebody's head uh, and their react into their directly into their reactive mind so as to try to kind of create a little bit of a Manchurian candidate situation where you feed a person an engram on purpose. You, you grab them, you knock them out. 
Uh, you could drug them. You could hit them. You could beat on them, whatever you want to do until you get them unconscious. So they're experiencing a moment of pain and unconsciousness. They're having an engram. And then you start loading up their reactive mind with commands like, you know, uh, I feel like killing the president. You know, I mean, use something stupid like that, right? I... I really want to kill the president. The president should die. You could enter 50 different variations of some kind of a feeling or need or compulsion to go kill the president, right? And you do this with an engram. You, you beat on the person. You drug the person. And this would be an instance of black Dianetics. This is using the Dianetics knowledge in an evil way, right, or for malicious purposes. So Hubbard said that this would be a possibility that, that, that the army or the intelligence services or psychiatry or other nefarious groups might try to use Dianetics in a nefarious way. And in fact, he talked about in the book Science of Survival, he said in order to prove his point, he invented this entire idea of pain drug hypnosis, PDHing. And PDHing is something known, known about in Scientology, and Hubbard said that this is actually a factual thing that was done by the U.S. military, and that the Dianetics counselors operating, you know, use, uh, doing Dianetics on, on veterans or ex-military or whatever, uncovered this, okay, and, and that this pain drug hypnosis was the purposeful, it was a kind of black Dianetics, it was a purposeful use of pain and drugs and hypnosis to install commands in people. Again, a kind of Manchurian candidate kind of black or a, a brainwashing kind of situation. Now, again, that's not really how this stuff works, like at all. The 1950s had it really wrong as far as what brainwashing, possibilities of brainwashing and hypnosis and how far you can go with this stuff and, and what you can do with it. You know, it's not a universal uh, go sign for creating covert agents, right? As you just grab somebody off the street, beat on them for a while, give them some drugs, hypnotize them and tell them what to do, and they're going to go do it. It, it. it just does not work that way. Uh, way more variables involved than just those. But Hubbard claimed in Science of Survival in the second book, uh, 1951, that they had uncovered proof of PDHing and that this was a practice and that Dianetics was the only thing that could undo it. So he said, along with the, with the uh, black Dianetics, the PDHing, and he said, yeah, this is a thing and auditors might run into it. And it's not just the military or military intelligence or, or that world of covert operations and spy craft and all that. That's not the only place where this could happen. He talked later on about how other groups and other people and individuals could do this kind of nefarious implanting or uh, PDHing, right? Or again, black Dianetics. It's all kind of the same kind of thing. And uh, the main reason Hubbard was was talking about this stuff or, or pimping it, as far as I can tell, is because he was trying to give lay down more credibility and more authority behind why Dianetics is actually legit. And, he, and by claiming that other groups like the Russians, the KGB, which he claimed, or the U.S. military or these other groups know about Dianetics and are working against Dianetics because it can undo 
their evil nefarious plans, you see. So that's kind of the back story on that and, the, and the, the motivation for why Hubbard would even go into any of this in the first place is he was trying to make his subject sound more serious, more uh, impactful, and more, um, well, and more dangerous, more, more powerful than it ever really has been, right? It was just more, you know, tall tales and tall talking on Hubbard's part to try to sell his subject. So at least that's how I see it. Um, you know, obviously, uh, just to comment on this, obviously it's a bad thing to grab somebody, beat on them, give them drugs and try to hypnotize them or try to give them commands. Whether that's going to work or not, that's just a bad thing to do to somebody, right? It's clear violation of their civil and human rights. So... It's not that I'm saying that, you know, go ahead and do that and everything's going to, you know, and, and you're going to find that it doesn't work. You'll find out what, you know, all kinds of things. But what I'm saying is that obviously that's not a good thing to go do, <laughs> but not because of the reasons Hubbard said. That's, that's my main point here. So anyway, there you go. Steve Wood. It seems to me that the majority of Scientologists will never, ever get to the top of the bridge. Therefore, how do the run-of-the-mill Scientologists ratify the fact that they can never complete the course and will never experience the total freedom as laid out by Hubbard? It's kind of like playing Monopoly and never passing go and never picking up the $200. So how do dedicated Scientologists find a way to accept this? Isn't it like studying for years to be a doctor but never becoming one? All right, Steve. So actually, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to call you out on this question a little bit, actually on the very first statement where you say, it seems to me that the majority of Scientologists will never, ever get to the top of the bridge. That is what it seems like to you. That is not what it seems like to Scientologists. Every single Scientologist absolutely positively believes that they're getting up to the top of the bridge. Now, some Sea Org members, some staff, you know, kind of start martyring themselves once they realize that they're not. And so there is a recognition among some Scientologists that, oh, gee, but even they kind of hope that the tide will turn or things will shift or, you know, somebody's going to go, hey, let's get you your bridge now, you know, and that's kind of thing. But, of course, there are some people who realize, wow, it's just not going to happen. Um, I mean, that was the reason I left the Sea Org is because I realized it wasn't going to happen in the Sea Org, but I thought I would go pay for it. I'd, I'd leave the Sea Org. I'd go get a job, make some money and buy my bridge like all the other Scientologists do. I didn't give up on it and think it wasn't going to happen. And that's the thing. Is, um, hope is one of the most powerful influencers in the human mind. It is an amazingly powerful influence. So when somebody can hold out hope for something, when they can have a goal or a dream or an ideal and go and strive for it, Sometimes the journey and the striving is the, is itself becomes a bit of the goal, but Scientologists absolutely believe that they are going to make it and that every step, and here's an important part of, of, of thinking about this, is that every step along the way is a little bit more surety, a little bit more certainty that they're going to retain the information, that they're going to remember next time around when they die and come back in another body that they were Scientologists and that they need to go connect with Scientology. 
the number one thing most Scientologists freak out about is forgetting. It's not, it's not that they're not going to make it. It's that they're going to forget everything uh, and then not be able to come back next lifetime in order to make it. So that if they don't make it this lifetime, they can always make it next. Right, that becomes a reality when you accept this idea of multiple lives and, and and coming back again, and the fact that you're immortal. You start thinking differently about time and and potential and stuff like that. Which is not to say that all Scientologists are okay with you know kicking it and and coming back next time maybe and finishing up the OT8. They want it now, but uh, it costs money. It takes time. There's all these hoops you got to jump through, and so they recognize that it's gonna that they're in for the long haul in doing Scientology, and that's one of the reasons that you'll see people kowtow or bend the knee to Scientology to jump through all their hoops, go through all the ethics clearances, pay for all the sec checks, give all the money for the IAS and for the bridge and for the books and for the this and for the that. You know, all the things that they're constantly hit up for to pay for or contribute to. And they do it because they think that this is what's building up their sort of credit their, their spiritual Scientology credit to getting up this bridge and that they are going to make it. So um, even, you know, in the face of, of how would you make it? How do you even imagine you're going to make it? They'll just look at you and go, because I'm going to make it go right. You know, like that's the ultimate test of a Thetan in Scientology is his ability to make things go right. So every Scientologist is absolutely sure that they are passing that test, right? And they are going to get there. And they might need to buy, beg, steal, or borrow to do it. Maybe they don't know how they're going to do it. Maybe they don't know when they're going to do it. But they all feel like they are going to do it. Because uh, when if you really start thinking along the lines that you're not going to make it and it was all a waste... You'd quit. You'd leave. And a lot that's that is a thing that drives people out of Scientology is when they do realize that and go, This is for the birds. I'm never gonna make this. And they go, Yeah, I'm out of here, right? So so that can happen, but they don't tend to stay after that realization, is at least my experience with that. Um, you know, of course I could be uh completely wrong, but uh and there could be exceptions to all of this, but I'm just talking about it from my experience. Um yeah, it's, you know, the other thing about this is that the the whole, all the mantras and the little sayings and the, and the whole culture of Scientology, it really reinforces this idea that you are eventually going to make it, but it might take a while and that you have to persevere. You've got to persist. The persistence itself becomes a kind of test as to whether you're going to make it to OT or not. There's a saying in Scientology I'm reminded of right now. You have to be OT to go OT. Right? You gotta, you, you're going to have to be an amazing person who's going to overcome all kinds of hurdles. You're going to have to demonstrate your ability to be cause over matter, energy, space, time, life, and form in order to get to be at cause over matter, energy, space, time, life, and form, you see? So, uh, and again, this is all about jumping through those hoops and, and, you know, and ticking off all the boxes and doing all the things that they make you do. But it's hard work. It costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of discipline. Um, and, it's, and, and it's just, it can be, you know, ugh, such a grind. Um, 
So these are the these little sayings get developed within the world of Scientology to keep people going. You have to be OT to go OT. You know, uh, it takes no T to make an OT. You know, this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so and then of course there's also the other thing that is put into Scientology that always kind of keeps the person going and keeps the hope alive is that no matter what problem they're still experiencing or still having, whether it's marriage or work or personal or something they got going on, if they've gotten up through OT3, OT5, you know, even OT7, you got to do the next step. You always, the next step is what's going to handle it, right? No matter what's going on, you get onto the next step. And that's what will handle it, right? So if you're OT3 and you still have aches and pains, yeah, you got to get it through OT5, man. That's where you get some more auditing, addresses some more of those body thetans, deals with more physical pains. And that's where you will accomplish that goal of no longer having those body pains, right? And so you go, okay, got to get it through OT5. Here we go, right? And, and, and the salespeople are quite adept, at explaining why that is, what each step, what each step is all about, and why you need it, and why it's going to handle all your problems, even though all the steps you've done up to now haven't. You see, that's all part of the sales pitch of each level. And it's always, always, always put there in Scientology that your next level is what's going to deal with stuff that you haven't, you know, dealt with yet. So, um, so that's the kind of thing that keeps people going there, I guess. And that's that's what I could speak to about this. Um, but I really wanted to make it clear that it's not the case that you have a bunch of people in Scientology who know they aren't going to make it and they just keep going. That is That is completely wrong. That's not how they think. And that's not what the picture is. So that's what I wanted to clear up here. And thanks for the question, Steve. Alex C., if it were somehow shown unequivocally that Scientology was true, would you accept it? Or would you basically say that the truth is unacceptable and keep living your life as is? What an interesting question, Alex. I think anybody who knows me or at least knows what I put out here would know that I would absolutely positively change my mind and uh, you know, go with it if I thought that Scientology was actually unequivocally true. Now, in order to prove something like that, you're going to have to be able to do things that nobody can do right now. But let's say that you can, right? And you can prove that a nothingness is a somethingness, that a thetan exists, that it actually is capable of being cause over matter, energy, space, time, life, and form, that all the things L. Ron Hubbard talked about with being able to postulate things into existence, and they do, and postulate things out of existence through as-isness, and they disappear, right? If you could prove all that to me, of course I would change how I'm living my life right now. That would be actually really interesting and fascinating news to me. Right? If all this stuff that I understand so well and have studied for decades and, and, and really got my wits around, if all that were true, that would actually be kind of good news to me in a lot of ways because it would, it would put back in place certain, certain certainties and rules and ideas about how the world is put together that would be quite exciting to me. And there would be a number of things I would want to explore and go down rabbit holes on uh, and, and, and check out and get into. And right, Because again, even if all of Scientology were true, let's remember 
that it is still rife with contradiction and it is still rife with thought-stopping cliches and it still doesn't fully explain itself, right? So there's still a ton of questions that would need answers that L. Ron Hubbard never answered. And uh, that might be really interesting to explore if we had this base certainty that a Phaeton was real, that spirituality was exactly how Hubbard described it, that we are going to continue to live life after life. I'm telling you right now that if there was a worldwide acceptance, if you could actually prove this, then the entire culture of this planet would change practically overnight. If we all knew we lived forever, are you kidding me? Our, our, our entire, everything would change. Everything would change. So, um, and it would certainly not change in the direction that Hubbard described with the whole Xenu thing, you know, where we're going to have some kicked in the head civilization that has fire trucks and, uh, and DC-8 or DC-9 planes transporting. I mean, you know, it's like, it's, like, it's, it's, it's. It's such a ridiculous question you're asking because there's no way that any of this crap could be true. But if it were, okay, then I'm living in a whole different universe that is playing by very different rules than than the one that I understand now. And I would roll with that because that's what good critical thinking is all about and that's what integrity is all about, right? I would rather live with an uncomfortable truth than a pleasing lie. I, I I would. I, you know, I I got lots of pleasing lies I tell myself, as do all people. But I, you know, if given my choice, I would rather have the truth. And so uh so I would very much change my life and change the course of my life if I knew that these Scientology principles were the real deal. Um but I can say that, you know, with this sort of uh smile on my face, this tongue in my cheek, because you know, I know it's not, and it, and it actually can't be. I mean, it's that, it, it, I'm that sure, right? It, just, it, it can't be true. There's too many internal contradictions and things that just don't gel together and, and make any damn sense. So if it were true, it would be like, well, how is it true? What's true about it? What exactly did Hubbard get right? All of it? That's weird. Uh, how's that possible, right? And we'd have to start breaking all that down. But uh, but an interesting question nonetheless, and so thanks for asking, Alex. Duke of Chug, is it truly the case that all old Sea Org members are fitness boarded, given $500, and thrown out on the street to be homeless, even after giving the church half a century of 100-hour work weeks? Is there a specific age cutoff? What did you think when you saw old Sea Org members thrown out into the streets and did that contribute to you deciding to leave? Okay, I did not see ever, not one time, did I see an old senior citizen Sea Org member thrown out on the streets. And while I don't, I'm, I'm certainly not saying it's never happened, because I have seen people who ended up being homeless and on the streets after leaving the Sea Org and getting kicked out. Uh, I've definitely seen that, but I have not seen senior citizens kicked to the curb of this way. In fact, what I saw and what I've talked about in the past on this is that I have seen the Sea Org take um, some degree of action to ensure that if they could not remain in the Sea Org until they die, and I saw people stay in the Sea Org until they died, senior citizens, right, that did happen. 
But if they were infirm, unable to work, became diseased, you know, whatever, then they had to get offloaded. And that was where the fitness board came in. A fitness board is simply a board that is put together to determine a Sea Org member's fitness, right? Can he or she stay in the Sea Org? Are they fit for duty? And if they have become unqualified, according to the Sea Org standards, including physically fit, then uh, they might get fitness boarded and found unqualified and then made to leave the Sea Org. But when that happens, one for one for one, they are a family member has contacted some some situation is set up where they are going to be cared for in some fashion. However, are those arrangements permanent? Are they the best possible arrangements for the person? Is it really what they need? Not all the time. Okay. So I'm not, I don't want to put this out there as, oh, it's all fine and there's no problem. This is Scientology. It's a destructive cult. They do bad things, right? But I did see with my own two eyes uh, senior citizen Sea Org members who were put into rest homes or old, you know, um, old people homes, I guess you could say, right? Retirement homes. Uh, And I saw old Sea Org members who were gotten back to family members to be cared for. And I saw a couple old Sea Org members who had money. They had trust funds or they had um, some kind of reserves of some kind or something. And they put themselves into a retirement home or something. So... I've seen a lot of different things with this, except for what you're describing in your question. Um, so, you know, is it truly the case that all of them are fitness boarded and kicked to the curb? No, it's not. It's not the case. Um, but again, I'm not going to sit here and say that that's never happened or that that's not, you know, something that you could find instances of. I just never, I, I can't think of any. So that's what I can say about that. Jesse Davis. What would it take for David Miscavige to lose his mandate to govern? Is it possible for the other board members of the RTC to essentially stage a coup and oust him from power? If David Miscavige was able to manipulate the political structure of Scientology so that he became COB after the death of LRH, then what is preventing another person from doing so? In order for David Miscavige to lose his mandate, he would have to be publicly pilloried or ridiculed or put in some position where everybody found out what a criminal, you know, awful person he is. And then they would lose their faith in him. And that is the Scientology, the body of Scientologists, because that's the group of people that Miscavige relies upon to pull the hood over, you know, the wool over their eyes. And they follow him blindly. Uh, And they don't pay too much attention to what he's up to. And if they did find out very forcefully what he was up to, there was some kind of video evidence of him beating on people or something like that. And it was like irrefutable. Like you you see it clearly. His face is right there. He's talking. You can hear him. He's beating on somebody. And it's clearly, you know, not deserved. Uh, Scientologists would absolutely positively react negatively to that. Almost uniformly, they would. Not very many Scientologists would think that it's okay to beat on somebody. Um, Like I've mentioned in the podcast this week, that's a Sea Org thing and sometimes a staff thing, but mainly that's a Sea Org thing. The public Scientologists are not okay with that. And uh, there are many, many places where Hubbard is, is sort of uh, writes words that could be interpreted easily as 
almost not pacifistic, but certainly that you wouldn't, you know, go that direction in order to resolve your conflicts or or discipline anybody. Um, you know, it can be justified, and it is justified all the time in Scientology, uh, that bad, you know, bad things are justified or rationalized. But if you could, if you could show, you know, Miscavige doing something really off the reservation, really crazy, um, Scientologists would might lose some faith in him, and that would be something that would be that would work. That would be something that 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 could get him gone. Um, there is no ability through the board of RTC to get rid of him. One of the things that one of the practices L. Ron Hubbard had in place when he ran the whole Scientology network was he had, wherever he wanted to have this, he would have undated signed letters of resignation from board members or other people, executive directors of organizations or board members of the various churches of Scientology. Hubbard had those. So if he wanted to, he could always throw a date on it, put it into play, and you're out of here, right? It's his version of getting rid of people he doesn't want anytime he wants to, right, with these undated letters. And um, Miscavige has done the same thing. So where all the key principal board members or positions of legal power in Scientology, Miscavige has utter control of. There's there has nothing been left to chance with that. So he holds the, all the keys to all the doors to all the places that power really resides in Scientology, the money, influence, etc. That's what Miscavige has hold of as the puppet master. And no one else has those keys. And, you know, doesn't even, a lot of people don't even know which of those doors, that those doors even exist, much less that there are keys to them. You know, it's, it's so, the information is compartmentalized and siloed so well in Scientology at the very, very top that, you know, you might know about this and this as if, you know, Mike, Marty Rathman or, um, Mike Rinder, right? They knew about this and this and this, but they didn't know about this and this. And maybe some other guy knew a little bit about this and this, but he didn't know about any of this over here. And so various junior people have their areas of responsibility or knowledge, but Miscavige is the only one who has the whole picture. As I understand it, that's how it's run at the very, very, very top of Scientology. There aren't, There isn't more than one guy who really gets the whole thing. Uh, maybe some of the lawyers do. I would say Monique Yingling and uh, her tax firm, and you know some of the some of those echelon people might have a at least from a legal standpoint, they might understand uh, the layout of the land and the labyrinth of corporate uh, entities that make up you know Scientology and all of that. But even then, they're not going to necessarily know all the internal stuff. You know, I don't know that Monique Yingling understands a damn thing about the Church of Spiritual Technology and the whole, you know, the whole um, uh, preservation of the tech project where they're doing all the, you know, the steel plates and all that, saving all of Hubbard's words. So even there, the lawyers might not necessarily be in the loop on all the different things that are going on, all the different wheels that are spinning at all times. So, and this is one of the ways that Miscavige ensures that he stays in power, is he's the only guy who really gets the whole thing. And he doesn't let anybody else in on his secrets unless he wants them to be. And so there isn't another person who's got the whole picture. 
it, probably Lou Stukenbrock, his communicator, would be the person who would be the closest to having the whole picture. Uh, Shelly, when she was his wife, uh, probably had uh, approximately the whole picture, and in one way or another. But even then, I can't say I can't sit here and say for sure that that's the case. Miscavige could be holding all kinds of things close to the vest. Now, the one of the reasons that he does this is exactly to prevent what you have asked about here, which is could somebody else come up the line and arrange a coup? Of course they could, and Miscavige is very aware of the fact that that can happen because he did it. So he knows all the tricks, and he knows where the, at least he knows the tricks he played, and he knows the tricks that other people have played over the years because there have been attempts to take him out, or there have been attempts by people to push back, and he has found them, and he has isolated them, and he has destroyed them. <laughs> Mark Yeager, for example. Uh, was was one such person. He he really tried to. Uh, I don't think he tried to do a whole coup thing, but he definitely was pushing back, and he got uh, isolated and controlled within an inch of his life until he kind of gave up on all of that. So Miscavige has that power, and he is very very paranoid, very very watchful for anybody pulling any kind of shenanigans like that. I think that uh, one of the problems with the Sea Org members as well is that you have. The, 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 the core of Scientology and all the important stuff that's going on in Scientology is happening at the level of the Sea Org. Um, there, there isn't a big thing going on with the staff or with the public. It, it, you know, it's the Sea Org where everything originates from and where everything is controlled. Sea Org members are indoctrinated from day one into being little compliance machines. It's all about compliance. It's all about yes, sir, no, sir, how high, sir. So you would have to go into this situation, into this hierarchy of compliance, and it's, and it's much significantly firmer than, say, the military. It's paramilitary, but the, the, what the Sea Org does is way more extreme than what goes on in any branch of the military. So um, what I'm, where I'm trying to go with this is you also have each Sea Org member thoroughly siloed into their areas. So in order to move up the ranks, you have to go through a number of clearances, security checks, you know, on the E-meter where they're, you know, uh, roto-rootering all of your crimes and moral transgressions from your whole life. And you're confessing, confessing, confessing. And all of this has various psychological effects on a person and keeps them compliant. So you're going to have to have somebody who's going to come up the line who that ain't going to work on, but they're going to pretend it did. Or somebody who's going to come up the line who that did work on, but at some point they're going to snap out of it or switch out of that. And they're going to start becoming crafty and cunning and trying to figure out how they can take over. And odds are they could probably figure it out if they were close enough and crafty enough, but they'd have to be pretty damn crafty. And they'd have to be aware of the fact that the e-meter doesn't do what it says it does, right? What Hubbard describes it doing. They'd have to be able to beat an e-meter, in other words, right? They'd have to be able to take the idea away that the e-meter can read their mind and that they need to confess things when the meter is responding, right? They gotta, they'd have to break out of that mindset, as I am sure David Miscavige has. I don't think Miscavige believes in the e-meter, and I don't think he believes that it really works the way Hubbard describes. 
and uh, and you'd have to have a similar kind of person come up the line in order to see through the facade of what's going on there is kind of where I'm trying to go with this is Sea Org members are the most indoctrinated, most controlled people in Scientology, and they are also the most fanatical, which means, unfortunately, that they're also the most irrational. They are incapable of critically thinking about their topic of Scientology and the Sea Org. They just can't. Um, so it'd be a little hard for somebody to be a good Sea Org member, rise up the ranks, check all the boxes, fill in all the blanks, and then turn into Miscavige's worst nightmare and take the whole thing over. It'd be really hard to be able to do that. You know, you'd have to have somebody who's pretty extraordinary. Um or completely nuts, right? Completely psychotic, uh, completely narcissistic, uh, like a Miscavige, right? So, uh, so it could be done. Could absolutely be done. Um, will it be done? Don't know. Could be happening right now. <laughs> uh, and I only laugh because I think it would be funny to see Miscavige get some some karma uh, payback. Uh, with a coup, I think that would be fascinating if Scientology were, were, all bets would be off if that happened. It'd be fascinating to see where, where, what direction could it go in if somebody else took control? Uh, cause it could go lots of different ways. It could go, it could go better. It could go worse or it could stay the same. So, uh, but anyway, I think I've made my point that, um, that no, you know, it would be very, very hard to do, but it could be done and, you know. Maybe eventually it will. All right. That is our show for this week. Thanks, guys, for coming around and uh, tuning in here. I have uh, very much enjoyed answering these questions. And please feel free to send me anything on your mind at all about Scientology. And also, do check out my whole back catalog. I think this episode that we're doing right now is like 350-something. I mean, we've been doing a lot of Q&As. And I have answered a lot of questions about this. You can find those answers on my Critical Clips channel. Uh, so you can get little clips of uh, answers that I've done. And, uh, of course, you can um, look up on my website or here on my channel here, the back episodes of the Q&A shows, and just binge them and uh, get uh, become an expert in Scientology and destructive cults and psychology and all of that. So, all right, guys. Thanks for coming around. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.